Well, good morning. I'm Kenny, one of the elders here. If you're visiting with us, we are in the book of Daniel, uh, and we're in Daniel chapter 3, and I want to pray, and I want to dive right into the story. So let me pray. Uh, forever with the Lord. Uh, we sang uh, that we are eternally secure. Eternally secure. And we also sang, Lord, that, that we would live in hope of immortality. Lord, that's hard to do. Uh, it's easy for us to live in light of the temporary and the immediate because that's right in our faces and oftentimes is, is challenging and, and difficult, even fearful. Um, but Lord, we want to live in light of immortality. Immortality changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It changes our entire timeline. We don't have to... Um, uh, strive and grasp to pack it all in now, but we can live at peace and at rest knowing that we'll be forever with you. Um, we don't have to fear even death, the gospel says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So Lord, help us this morning. Use Daniel 3 and the, the courage that was grounded in faith of these three young men. Lord, give us the same courage by faith, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Daniel chapter three. Let's just read this story. It's a good one. Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, breadth six cubits about 90 feet high. This is huge. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O oh, king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. 
They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. (laughs) If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no god, other god, who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That is an amazing story. That is a true story. We do not believe that these are myths. 
or legends to teach morals, but historical record of the way that God showed up in real time in the lives of his faithful people, these three young men in this case, and showed who's boss, who is the true God of heaven. Now, before we dive into the details of the story, I want to point out three ways that our stories this morning in 21st century La Mirada share in common with this story in Babylon hundreds and hundreds of years ago because if you're like me and sometimes you read these stories like in the Old Testament, the river of difference between their situation and ours feels so foreign, right? Everything from the geography to the historical setting to the cultural environment. I mean, they're bowing to a giant 90-foot statue. I don't think any of us have been tempted to bow to a 90-foot statue this last week. They're threatened with capital punishment in a furnace. It just feels so foreign, but it's not as foreign as you'd think. If we keep in mind what Rob and Eric were impressing upon us the last two weeks, that like Peter says, we now, as we wait for Jesus' return, living in a world that is opposed to Christ, in every culture, in every place on the earth, in one way or another, is opposed to Christ in ways um, we have common ground. We are like sojourners and exiles, Three ways we have some common ground here before we get to the story. Number one is pressure to conform. I mean, if, if I had to sum up this story with one sort of uh, feeling word, it's pressure, right? I mean, the story has tremendous pressure to conform. And, and so will we. Paul wrote to, to Christians like us, Romans 12, 1, do not be conformed to this world. Conformed is talking about pressure being exerted on us, trying to shape us and vacuum mold us into the shape of this world and this world's values, this world's virtues, this world's um, uh, way that is contrary to the ways of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8, Paul says, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed. Or the NIV says that word afflicted, uh, interprets it as we are hard-pressed in every way like grapes in a wine vat or Jesus when he's being pressed in on by the crowds that are squeezing him. We are, as we walk in this world following Jesus, hard-pressed in every way but not crushed. I want to give us a visual here for uh, hard-pressed. I'm mesmerized by these videos on YouTube. Pressure. Daniel's friends are facing a tremendous pressure in this story to conform in this situation to everyone surrounding them, and so will we, right? As Christians, faithfully believing that this word of God is inspired and inerrant and the, the ultimate authority over us that God tells us what reality is and we submit to him and we follow his word in the 21st century, we will, like Daniel's friends, feel pressure to conform now, it won't be pressure in our context to bow to a 90-foot idol set up on a plane. But it will be to bow and adopt and embrace the reigning ideologies of our day and in our culture, in our setting. And I think arguably one of the largest looming idols, ideologies that we feel pressed in by in our day, Carl Truman would call in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, radical expressive individualism. It's not the only idol of our day, but it is a dominant one. 
This is what this means. The, the term was coined by a sociologist in the 90s, meaning this, each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that must unfold or be expressed if their individuality is to be realized. Carl Truman calls this emphasis on the self that's at the very heart of our culture right now, a form of idolatry because it essentially removes God from the center of human existence as the one who tells us, reveals to us who we are and how he's made us and what our purpose is. And it puts ourselves individually, elevates us to the throne and the position of ultimate authority and worship and self-determination, right? It's very Tower of Babel-esque. It's raising a defiant fist to God and declaring autonomy and saying, no, reality God is what I say it is, not what you tell me it is. The pressure to conform to that ideology of our day is tremendous and it's growing. Do you feel it? If you don't feel it, that may be a wake-up call this morning and you go, oh, maybe I don't feel it because it's just the water I, I swim in. I'm already being conformed to it. If you do feel it, the question this morning for us is, where will the strength to resist come from and to stand with God, to stand with Jesus? Daniel 3 can help us here. I got a visual for do not be conformed here. One last little video. Here we go. You see what happened right there? It looked like that thing was getting flattened, that ball bearing, but when that 100-ton hydraulic press came back up, what happened? It made an impression on the, on, on the, on the press, Right? That's what Paul wants us to be like as Christians, not only not crushed, but actually making a counter dent in the pressure that's crushing in on us. Blessing without blending in, that's what we mean. It's the counter dent of gospel witness. And in the same way that Daniel 3 ends with Nebuchadnezzar, the 100 ton hydraulic press of Nebuchadnezzar in his fiery furnace doing their best to try to squash these three men and he comes out impressed that their God is the only God who can rescue in this way. In the same way for us Paul's hope is that our nonconformity, our standing by faith with confidence and courage with Jesus will make a similar gospel counter dent in the world around us and those over whom we have influence. So first, pressure to conform is common ground. Second is the force behind the pressure to conform, which is fear of man. Behind the indirect pressure of all these crowds simultaneously bowing when all the, the band strikes up and the direct threat of the king's wrath and the furnace is fear of man. That's what makes the pressure to conform such a pressure, right? It's fear of what man can do. If I had to sum up Daniel 3 with one sentence of Jesus, it would be this, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Long before Jesus spoke those words, these three guys understood this truth, didn't they? Faced with Nebuchadnezzar's wrath and fury on one side and his, his flaming furnace and the fear of the Lord's wrath, his ultimate judge, judgment, he's the one we stand before as judge ultimately. Faced with these two, as we're gonna hear in their own words, 
Their minds were already made up. They didn't need to discuss this any further with the king. They'd already arrived at this conclusion when they got to Babylon and refused to defile themselves with the king's food. They were going to fear God above rather than men. And their fearlessness created a counter dent, bearing witness to their God. That's the third common ground here I want to point out is that gospel fearlessness, fearlessness because we fear God and therefore we don't need to fear man, actually bears witness. It, it testifies to the God in whom we trust, the God whom we fear. One last, I was thinking of these words from Peter in 1 Peter. The same book where he urges us as sojourners and exiles about how we live in this world that's not our home. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, I can hear these young guys, but if not behind that, even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And as we'll see, Daniel's friend's refusal to bow to the king's command and their willingness to pay the ultimate cost and yield their bodies to his furnace rather than serve King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods and this idol he set up makes that king recognize this hope that's in him. That's not just an apologetics verse when it says, always be prepared to give a defense. That's not, so learn some good arguments about the existence of God. That's a great thing to do. But the context there you see is when people see you suffering for what is, for, for innocently suffering for what is right and, and, and submitting yourself and yielding yourself to the sovereign of God, they're gonna say, what is this hope that's in you that would lead you to do that? And then you give a reason for the defense that's in you. The fearlessness that we see here and that, that we can have in our lives through the gospel presents an opportunity to bear witness to the God in whom we trust, the God we fear. So look at the first three verses. Here's the context. Here's the story, how it gets set up, and then it unfolds, I think, in three main scenes. But here's the context. Verse one, the king sets up an image. Did you notice the repetition of that phrase, set up? I, I was reading very intentionally to draw attention to it. Eight times, it says the king set up this 90-foot image, this gold image, entirely of gold. If you weren't with us last week, that's really important because just last week in chapter two, he had had this troubling dream, didn't know what it meant. Daniel, God revealed to Daniel not only the dream but what it meant. And in the dream, he'd seen this giant idol with a gold head and a silver torso and then bronze and then iron and clay all the way down to the feet. And as it was interpreted to the king of what this is gonna mean, he had been told very clearly, you represent the golden head. That's your reign, but it's going to come to an end, and one, other, one nation after another is going to rise and fall after you until one day God is going to send another king. He says like a stone uncut with human hands that comes and levels it all, and that kingdom remains. And listen to what he said, Daniel said at the very end of that interpretation. He says to the king, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. So when we read in chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a gold statue 90 feet tall out on the plain, we are absolutely supposed to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I disagree. I reject that interpretation, 
My kingdom will have no end. It's all going to be gold from head to toe. He's making a statement here. And notice where he sets this up. Out on the plain in the province of Babylon, we should hear echoes of Genesis in the Tower of Babel. This is the same geographical general location. And here again, men are defiantly raising their fist at God and saying, I will determine my future and I will elevate myself and seek my own glory. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing with this statue. But I love how Daniel keeps telling it. This is this thing that he set up. I mean, this is just a thing he made, right? He set it up. How can this thing that he just brand new put out on this plane be worthy of worship, right? So verse two, we get the invitation. He sends an invitation out to all the provinces of Babylon, to the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the councilors, et cetera. And they're all called to assemble and fall down and worship this idol. And remember, at the end of chapter two, the king had appointed Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah over the affairs of the officials in the province of Babylon, and Daniel remained at court. So that tells us that's why these three guys are here right now and probably why Daniel's absent in this scene. And it also reminds us all these important people that are showing up um, answer to these guys, that they are over these affairs of Babylon and all these people likely. So here we go. Here's scene one, starting in verse three. Scene one is the pressure, pressure to conform. The pressure just keeps building. Behind it is the fear of man, but it starts indirectly. Look at verse three. It starts with a decree. At the music, all people and languages and nations, they're all to know that when you hear the music, you're to fall down and worship. If you don't, you're burned alive. Now you might say, that's not very indirect. What I mean is it's impersonal. It's, it's not directed specifically personally at these three guys, yet it's gonna get very much more personal in just a few more verses. But for now, there's this broad sweeping decree. Everyone's gonna bow to this statue or else. And then in verses two and three, were descri- described for us at great length the crowds twice, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials. And then in verse three, it lists them all again. And then we're listed all the instruments that are gonna be blaring their music as the signal and call to worship, right? And twice we get all the people and nations and languages. So we get these lists and lists and repetition. This chapter would be half as long if they just put in a few pronouns. Seriously. For those of you who grew up with Schoolhouse Rock, I kept thinking of Rufus Xavier Sarsaparilla, right? You just, a couple of pronouns would shorten this story considerably they, right? Or the instruments. But there's an intention to the way this story is being told. The, the repetition, I think, is painting a picture. Number one, a humorously absurd picture. I think that as it keeps listing all of these things, it's supposed to be a little bit funny. This is something the king set up. And all this fanfare and bluster and formality and all the important people being invited and all their fine things probably leading the way in prominent positions so everyone else can follow their lead and it's striking up the band. They're all gonna, we're supposed to kind of roll our eyes like this, this is just a thing that he set up, right? And, 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 and it, we're doing all this? But also it paints a picture of pressure, because here's these three guys were to imagine them. By the way, let me see here. I wanted us to zoom in. Danielle Kamerlinga did this awesome artwork on our, for our series. But they're over on the left. There's the scene we're in right now. Here's these three guys. And you imagine everyone, every last one of these guys with all these titles and every people and, and nation and language immediately 
hits their knees as soon as the first note is sounded. And the music must have been deafening with all these instruments blaring, right? And here's these three guys. Can you imagine them as everyone drops to the ground and there's this pressure crushing in indirectly of are you going to bow or not? Even if you say, I won't bow on the inside, but I'll make just a show of it to get by. It's pressure. If I close my eyes right now and reflect, I can vividly remember even the feeling of eighth grade chapel at Whittier Christian Junior High every week when they would lead singing. I love singing at church, but at school, in that crowd, the cool people at my school in eighth grade did not sing at chapel. And they would bring different people from different youth groups to come and lead singing each week. And, and I remember standing there with my hands in my pockets just silent being conformed by the pressure around me of all the cool kids now singing. And one week, the two guys who led worship for my youth group, Greg will remember them, Walt Gangwear and Jay Kyle, they came to junior high chapel one day and suddenly my youth worship leaders are up there leading and I'm standing there like in the third row trying not to make eye contact as I am not singing. And at one point I remember they recognized, oh, hey, there's Kenny right there. And I could tell they saw me and I was mortified because I was just standing there silent. I'm sure they were thinking, he sings at church? Man, I was just silent. Now here's the thing, middle schoolers, if you're in the room. Bad news, you don't grow out of peer pressure when you graduate into high school. And high schoolers, you don't graduate out of peer pressure when you graduate and go to college. And college students, peer pressure doesn't go away. Middle-aged people like me, peer pressure doesn't go away. Peer pressure is always here. It just morphs into different forms and different people become the peers that we feel indirect pressure to bow before. Am I right? If I'm right, say amen. That's right, okay. It's not just me. (laughs) Different ways. Maybe it's crowds on social media these days that you feel intimidated by. You're sort of cowed into silence at best when people are ranting about these different things and you don't agree, but you just sort of stay out of the fray or at worst, sometimes you're, you're, you're tempted to click that like button just to make sure that the outrage of the culture doesn't maybe land on you. Maybe the crowds you feel pressure from are your circle of friends at school or your coworkers and the conversation at lunch or around the, the lunch table or when you get together for family gatherings with your extended family and it's very clear where you stand and it's not where the majority is, whatever it is. Maybe another way you feel that indirect pressure of, the, of our culture just crushing in on you, maybe the horns and bagpipes and trigons and ba- bagpipes now are Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and Apple Plus and the constant stream of streaming media content often laced with these ideologies that are just pressing in on us, leeching the cultural values of the world into our minds. So there's indirect pressure, but then it gets very direct. Look at verses 8 through 15. It's obvious that the three don't bow. And so verses 8 through 12, they're accused by certain Chaldeans, some of the religious counselors in Babylon. They notice these guys are conspicuously standing. And they quickly run to the king, and they unjustly accuse the friends of at least two things. In gratitude, certain Jews you've appointed O king, over the affairs of Babylon. In other words, look how they repay your kindness, O king. You've given them this important status and look what they do. They're insubordinate. They pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Now, there's no indication in Daniel 3 that these three guys were anything but exemplary in their service to the king. It's in this one matter that they've drawn the line and they've refused to submit. And so I think it's an exaggeration. They pay no attention to you, king. Well, not exactly. And then it gets even more intense. They're threatened. The king blows a gasket. Look at verse 13. In furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar responds, how dare they refuse to bow to this thing that he had set up? And verse 14, he can't believe it. Is it true? You don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So he gives them one last chance, an ultimatum, verse 15. When you hear the music, one last chance, if you will not bow, you will immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. Their allegiance to the most high God may cost them their lives. I want to pause just for a moment here, Grace, just as the reminder, even the reminder of the W family that we prayed for, calling them the W family just 10 or 15 minutes ago. At this very moment as we're here safely worshiping and and preaching the word of God with a microphone, loudly, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are in places daily under the pressure of being exposed, the threat of violent mobs burning their church down or their house down or worse, or police states being hauled off into prison never to be seen again. Most of us in this room, I bet I'm, I'm probably safe to say, probably 100% of us in this room will never face violent death for the sake of the name of Jesus. But Jesus' words aren't any less true. You will be hated for my name's sake if you follow me. That's what you signed up for. That's what I signed up for. Are you ready? I was reminded, uh, there's a pastor who's written some great books on evangelism, but he was preaching at a conference at one point along this theme, Max Stiles, and he's talking to a room full of, you know, American Christians like us, and he says this. He says, most of the world fears the raised fist, We fear the raised eyebrow. Ouch. That stings. That says something about our lack of resilience and gospel courage, right? If we fear the raised eyebrow, how would we possibly have courage in the face of the raised fist? But here we go. Verse 15, the king throws the gauntlet down. This is the theological gauntlet being dropped in this story. Who is the God who is able to deliver you from my hand? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) No, how is this going to play out? So there's pressure to conform. Scene number two, verses 16 through 18. There's all the pressure. Here's the power to resist we see in these three guys. And the power to resist is fear of the Lord. Look at verse 16. I love this. We have no need to answer you in this matter. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) You see, yes, I think they're thinking, yes, your furnace is terrifying. We'll grant you that. But we know the stories of Mount Sinai, King. (laughs) When the Lord made a covenant with us as a people for his own possession in the first place and he gave us the law that started like this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in it in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's our God, King. And as the Lord had given the law 
to the people that day at Sinai and displayed visibly and audibly his holiness and glory. Hebrews describes it like this. It was a scene of blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg no further messages be spoken to them. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, Moses said, I tremble with fear. Nebuchadnezzar's furnace can't hold a candle to that, pun intended. Surely these three guys hadn't forgotten also why they're in Babylon in the first place. For their people's unfaithfulness to this law and for bowing to idols and serving the gods of the other nations. That's why they're in Babylon in the first place. This exile was an act of judgment for that. How could they possibly bow? That's why they say uh, to the king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. But they don't just have the warnings of God. They have the promises of God. Isaiah God spoke all these words of assurance to his people who were about to go into exile and suffer. And here's one of the promises he said to his faithful ones. He says, fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you are mine. Even in Babylon, you are mine. You don't disappear from my sight or my presence when you go into exile. He says, when you pass through waters, I'll be with you. Through rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's who these three guys feared. Stacked up next to this God, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing. And their fear of the Lord made them confident of two things. Number one, verse 17, he could absolutely deliver them from this furnace if he so chose. He says, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And this isn't the first time they've seen this. In chapter one, they'd already seen as they asked to eat, not eat the king's food, the Lord had showed them favor. He'd showed he was present with them and caused them in 10 days to look stronger and fitter and fatter than all the other guys and had elevated them in their education program. In chapter two, they'd seen the Lord's presence as as they were about to be executed with all of the, the wise men and magicians in the land and God interprets the dream for Daniel and saves their necks and promotes them. This isn't the first time that they'd seen that the God who made those promises in Isaiah was with them. They were confident. And they also seem to believe, look at the end of that verse, they also seem to believe that even the king's furnace couldn't separate them from the Lord their God. He says, he is able to deliver us from your furnace, O king, and he will deliver us out of your hand. I think they have the confidence that though they may succumb to the king's furnace, though this might go that way, this might be the end, that that would just be another form of their Lord's deliverance. I'm reminded of Paul who was awaiting news of whether or not he was going to be executed in Philippians 1. He says, I'll rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. What does he mean by that? It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul didn't presume on the Lord how this was going to turn out, but he was confident that either way this turns out, it's for my gain and my life. And I think Daniel's friends likewise recognized that the Lord's deliverance could come either way, immediately as they would walk out of the fiery furnace or in the presence of the Most High God. And they don't presume to know the Lord's will in this. So they say, verse 18, but if not, either way this is going to go, our hands are in the Lord's. 
We fear him above you. Be it known, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. You know, it struck me, they had no idea as they walked into that fiery furnace that they would end up in the half of Hebrews 11 with all those people who by faith were delivered. (laughs) They could have just as well ended up in the half that includes people who were tortured, refusing to accept release, who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains, imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two and killed with the sword. Their fate could have gone that way too, but their hope was in the Lord. Either end was acceptable. So these young men meet this tremendous pressure to conform the fear of man with a greater fear of the Lord and they resist and they refuse and they stand their ground and they make a a counter dent for the most high God. And what does God do? How does God choose to answer this king's gauntlet that he's thrown down? Who can deliver? What God is there that can deliver from my hand? He chooses to deliver them. Look at scene three. The protection of the deliverer. The king summons up his maximum fury in verse 19. This defiance just causes him to lose it. He cranks the furnace up as hot as it can go. It's like cartoonish, right? You can almost picture the little gauge on the side and the needle maxed out and steam like bursting out like, we're gonna fry these guys, right? And he just is nuts. And to underscore how hot the furnace is, the guys who are trying to throw him in die from the heat as they're just throwing them in. I mean, it's crazy. And then verses 24 and 25, the Lord delivers them. And I love that we get the description of the Lord answering the question, what God is there that can deliver from the king's hand? We get that description from the words of the king who's witnessing this with his eyeballs. Then the king was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They said, true, O king. I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not burned. They're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Here they are in there, unbound, walking around, unhurt, unsinged, and they're not alone. See those three guys in green there, and then Daniel's got this mysterious fourth figure there kind of glowing up above them. There's this fourth person. Who was this mysterious fourth man? Lots of ink has been spilled on this, trust me. Was it the pre-incarnate son, the second person of the Trinity before he came to earth and, and, and took on a human nature, him showing up in person to li- deliver these three guys? Was it just an angel? I'm gonna give you my unsatisfying answer. Are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> D- D- Daniel doesn't tell us. Which should probably tell us it's probably not the point. It's probably not the point to be exactly sure who is this fourth being like a son of the God comes out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. It doesn't, he's not using the phrase like in the Gospels referring to Jesus as the son of God. So maybe he just means there's someone else in there that doesn't look like those three guys. Something supernatural. And in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar calls it an angel, right? But here's the point. I think we're simply to recognize that in that furnace, God was present and he kept his promise quite literally from Isaiah. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. The Lord answered the king's arrogant question, who is the God who will deliver you? Said, that would be me. (laughs) And they walk right out. And the king's officials, 
who brought the accusation have to eat crow and bear witness to it. Look at, they all saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of this men. Their hair was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. If you've ever toasted marshmallows by a campfire and reeked of smoke for an entire day afterward, this is amazing. They came out of this blaze and they didn't even smell like smoke. And look at verses 28 through 30, the resolution of this story. The king blesses their God for the second time, by the way. I think he had forgotten he did that back in chapter two. He decrees religious freedom for them and actually protection for them to continue worshiping the most high God without reprisal. And he promotes them again. And he ends eating crow and admitting the answer to his own question. There's no other God who's able to rescue in this way, he says. So now, as we end, I think this story does point us forward to Christ. Here's how. Let's go back to Jesus' words here in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, don't fear the Nebuchadnezzars of this world. Fear the Lord. Can we compare Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord for a moment? I mean, it's no contest, but think just for a minute of the, of the snapshot of Nebuchadnezzar here. He sets up his little statue in a field. He commands every people, all, everyone to bow down and worship him when all the instruments play, and he throws a tantrum when three exiles from Judah refuse and immediately throws them into the fiery furnace of his judgment. Now let's think of the Lord. The Lord alone is truly worthy that all peoples, nations, languages fall before him in worship. He's worthy of the worship of the world. He alone is the one who's created everything to whom all the world will answer as judge one day. And we've all, to the last one of us, fallen short of giving him the glory that he is due as that most high God. None have bowed, no, not one, in ourselves. And the Bible says the wages of that sin, that affront, that offense to the God who gives us life and breath and everything is death, not just physical death, but death with a capital D, separation from him, not just in a fiery furnace of the king's wrath, but Jesus uses the word hell. Separation from God forever, torment. Hebrews 10.31 rightly says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So can we marvel at the mercy and the patient forbearance and the slowness to anger of the Lord when we stack it up next to Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant rage. Even today, he's withholding that judgment and waiting. Because you see, if we turn Nebuchadnezzar's question around and consider God asking, who is the God who will deliver us out of his own hands? His answer is, he is. God will deliver us out of his own hands hands of wrath, his own judgment. He will send his son. The answer is God, is God the son? So here's, could it have been the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the son of God, walking around in the furnace, shielding Daniel's three friends from the fire? Sure. But I don't think that the father needed to send his only son to rescue three guys from a big fire. The, the father did need to send the son and could only send his only son to rescue us from his wrath. That's the gospel. What was still a mystery to Daniel and his friends was that 
before the sun ever came like that stone uncut from human hands coming and leveling all the kingdoms of the earth and establishing his kingdom on earth forever that would reign forever, there was another day that had to happen first and it's the day that's already come. It's the day when Jesus humbly left his throne, left heaven, condescended, took on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the cross, Jesus didn't join us in the fiery furnace of God's wrath. He went there alone in our place so that we might never have to enter it in the first place. And what he endured on that cross, that public state a mode of execution. They had no idea the suffering he was actually enduring. When the full burning wrath of God fell on him and he endured our consequence for the sins of the world. When we fear God who did this for us, truly we don't have to fear anything else. Earthly kings can rage. Social media can rage. <laughs> Even succeed in causing us to suffer, but Paul's words remain true, friends, in Romans 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't fear the one who can kill your body but not your soul. When you fear the one who has power over both body and soul, who gave this, the, 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 his son in place for your soul so that he might love you forever and your sin might be forgiven forever and you might be with him forever, whom shall we fear, Grace? Not only that, it gets better. Romans 16, 20, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let me pray. So Lord, I, I pray you'd use this story. Lord, uh, it says, Paul said, wrote at one point that um, these things that were written in the past were written for us so that through endurance and the encouragements of the scriptures, we might today have hope. So Lord, I pray that you'd use Daniel's uh, friend's faith um, and their courage and their fear of the Lord and their example that we would walk in their footsteps. And as we face in whatever forms this world is pressing in on, on us today, even this week, Lord, that, that our fear of you would cause us not only not to be crushed, uh, but to make a counterdent in the lives of the people around us for, for their eternal good, Lord. And I pray you'd give us confidence that we are more than conquerors as we walk out of this place this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.